Clay, I have to apologize to our listeners. It seems that my error in making this podcast, surprisingly enough, is not that I'm a grotesque of inconceivable stupidity, but because I'm white and male and not repulsively obese. I thought it was because you found more to admire in the male asshole. <laughs> that too. My young, then I give you a nice little slap on the ass and I walk on my way out of, out of this podcast recording studio that we found ourselves into. Yeah, I've never connected. Uh, I'm not like uh, I'm not one to be like a uh, sort of uh, MAGA type supporter, but I am. I did connect with being white and male and not repulsively obese, and I thought that the show really captured a moment there for me with E.B. Farnham and poor Richard Richardson, if we uh, assume that that's his name. Being, you mean getting mad at a person of color because you were replaced by them even though they're more qualified than you to do the job yeah and they keep me on in in my job yeah yeah as yeah. a uh, as a maitre d or something like that yep aunt lou we're going to be talking all about all the changes all the uh, the changes of the rainbow that are happening on deadwood and this one the latest episode of our deadwood show which is covering the episode called true colors so we're going to take a break we'll play the music and we're going to come back and we'll break it down You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you something pretty. True Colors is the third episode of the third season of Deadwood, directed by Greg Feinberg, written by Regina Corrado and Ted Mann. In this one, True Colors, a stagecoach arrives on the thoroughfare. Wu has returned wearing a fancy suit. On the same coach is Aunt Lou Marchbanks, <laughs> who is happily met by her employer, George Hurst, in the theater impresario Jack Langriche, who greets his old friend, Al Swearingen. Alma vows to meet with Hurst. Hurst asks Farnham for intelligence on the widow Garrett. Ellsworth, who has worked in Hurst's Comstock mine, disrupts Alma's meeting with Hurst. There's bodies in there, he says. The Cornishman Pasco tells Bullock of a murder at Hearst's mine via another miner who translates. Swearingen escorts Langriche on a tour of Deadwood. Bullock tells Hearst he's put on notice. I identify a pattern in these events. Hearst scoffs. I put you on notice. Alma offers 49% of her claim for 5% of Hearst's. Your proposal offends entirely, he responds. Hearst confides in Aunt Lou that he'd rather be off by himself prospecting. So, Clay, this is True mm. Colors, which, according to Vulture's ranking of the Deadwood episodes, is the third worst episode of the show. Um, Interesting. <laughs> so, I was looking at this list, and it's like, um, this is the, I know that you have to make a, like, a little listicle uh, on the internet. It's just kind of like a required thing. But this is, uh, I think there's a lot of shows, not just this one. They're incredibly difficult to rank, really. Like, it's, mm. it's almost meaningless, I think. Um, and maybe I'm just kind of... Uh, Angry because I actually like this episode quite a bit, and I'm surprised that it's considered to be the third worst. But um, there's a there's a little bit of like I, I think that the, their review it is of it is a little bit like post everything's done uh, sort of. That's like just about what they talk about, and it makes me think that they're kind of putting a retrospective view on the episode that isn't actually in it um, in and of itself. But how are you in the first place? You're doing well. I'm, uh, yes, I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. We, we've taken a little bit of time away from Deadwood. I, I was trying to, I was trying to segue into. I'm glad we've had this time to catch up. <laughs> we haven't had any, um, theater 
uh, impresarios, I guess they call them in the little summation, enter our lives or anything like that. But I was wondering if you had had any any uh, in the inter in the weeks between the recording of these episodes, we had a little break, and I guess you didn't have anybody show up in your life that surprised you and knew you better than you even know yourself. No, uh, no, I can't say that I have. What'd you think uh, of What'd you think of Langrish in this? His, man, this is I Brian Cox's love, appearance. Br- love Brian Cox. I'm I'm here for anything he wants to do and how big he wants to go. I'm I'm with him all the way. <laughs> Why don't you see your type? Excuse me. Type. Don't you use type to print out your words? Uh, well, I'd hope to secure from Mr. Langrish. I just... want copious discourse between us, Mr. Merrick. Where shall I find you soon? Well, we could speak now. If you not wish. now, young man. Not immediately. But soon. Very, very soon. Hmm. Where is your lair that I may beard you? <laughs> my, my lair joins the gym. Wonderful. I can be bearded there most hours. Fine. <laughs> well, well oh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, uh, very nice to meet you, sir. The camp is lucky to have you. Uh, no way, actually, you can know that. Go on, Merrick, get away. Oh, incessant and unrelenting. Exactly that type of banter. I'll just go out the front. I, you know, I could, I could go out that way, but I, I'll... Have you, did you watch uh, Succession at all? No, I, you know, the, the, the last two big HBO uh, zeitgeist shows, I just completely missed like i haven't watched chernobyl yet oh, okay and i haven't i haven't watched succession i'm I, i'll probably get around to it at some point but i just it, it just uh was not yeah something that i was following chernobyl's short so that one's an easy one to get to i, I would i would say watch chernobyl over success and, uh, succession but succession is very good i we hear they're both up. equally funny yeah um yes and sad at the same time too they, they both are they're both a comedy of errors i think but chernobyl was excellent um succession is also really good and brian cox is obviously in succession but um i'm watching that more in the background as amy amy is dedicatedly watching it and i'm sort of oh, checking sure. in every yeah. once in a while and it's good it's very funny and very sad uh, it does yeah. the, the, those things too very those I, two things very well i think we're coming up on needing a new show to watch i think because mm-hmm. the stuff that we've been watching I, we, we've almost run through every columbo episode right <clears throat> and uh the other stuff we watch is is getting close to being done with the season so maybe maybe we'll look into that i don't know is i <laughs> the the thing that we keep doing frequently is i'll say do you want to check this show out and then caitlin will say yeah okay i'll give it a shot and then after the first episode she'll go you don't have to wait for me to watch yeah that. And, <laughs> Which is a, just a death knell because it's like yeah. the only time I would watch this is at night. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah. And you have a little bit of um, when someone says that you kind of have a little bit of like a like you have to you ha- you you're you're sort of being dared to finish it in a way. You know, like right. you're, like yeah. you you waste your time watching that. Let me know how it goes, and and uh, I'm exactly. not going to join you. Yeah. But no, I just I choose what I want to chip, what I want to watch. I decide when to drop in and when to enjoy a TV show and when <laughs> not to. No one can force me to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, this is. I mean, we can start with the theater troupe in- introduction. It happens in this episode. Um, one of the reviews I was reading was that they kind of set him up as an antagonist because he shows up in the spot that the series has always brought antagonists in, which is the third episode of each season. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> uh, because they brought in Tolliver in the first season, and then they brought in Walcott in the second season, the third episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's brought in in the same way. Did you ever have any sense that he would uh, is an antagonist from his appearance? Um, 
A little bit, only because I don't know what his relationship to Al really is. And the thing that, that made me suspect of him actually was that first scene in the the gem with Merrick. Because Merrick kind of like shoots him a look where he's not totally sure what this guy's deal is. Yep. Yep. And that was the thing that made me kind of go like, all right, I don't know what this guy's deal is. <laughs> um, and also he stiffed he stiffed the Russian guy on a tip. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> they, they, he got his dollar. He, he overpaid for it, but he got his dollar yeah. from that lady. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I it's a little too early for me to really get a sense of, of what he's even doing there, honestly. Sure. Is he gay um, or not? I mean, back then, did you really need to put a label on it? Freddie Mercury named his band Queen, and he couldn't convince anybody. Do you think that uh, <laughs> Jack Langriche is going to convince anybody? I mean, I don't know. In a, in a mining town, come, showing up in a cape and a wide-brimmed fancy hat and yeah, then entering and leaving every room going like, hello, <laughs> is a pretty good indication. But I don't know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say either way. It's hard just to be say. an actor. It's hard to say. He, he might be. And the the thing that I I like about the theater troupe introduction is that they uh, they continue this idea of the town is going through development, right? So like we had our Wild West in the first season, then the politics have encroached in the second season, then in the third one, the thing that they introduce is the idea of like eventually civilization or a camp or whatever is going to get to a point where like leisure becomes important. Heath Leisure uh, and the and the entertainment aspect uh, before you could stream Netflix or anything like that, you'd have to have, rely on a theater troupe to come into town. But they, it is the development that like the town is settled in enough to this point where you need some kind of entertainment, which is what I like about the theater troupe. Um, mm. The theater troupe continues in the third season, and we'll have more to say about them as they continue on. But there's, I think that the. I don't know. I I don't know. Do you th- would you what what was your th- overall thoughts of this episode? I guess before I say um, how Langriche ties into what I think about this one. Um, I thought it was pretty good. You know, I I can see why it might be rated lower because the tricky thing with this show is just that it seems like there's nothing going on. Yeah, but there's there's constantly stuff going on. Um, I mean, I, I would say if you're dedicating a third of your episode to just walking around the town and showing someone the different buildings, maybe I can see why that might be a little bit lower on the list. But I mean, that was a fun that the interaction with those two was fun. I can't wait to see, uh, Tolliver, Brian Cox and, uh, Ian McShane all in the same room because yeah. there might not be any scenery left to chew <laughs> and it might, the, the, the the distortion level on the sound recording based just <laughs> off the grizzle of all three of those men might be uh, too much to bear. I like the uh, on the the walk around is the the, the important part of Langriche, I think in this episode is the sort of walk around the town tour that he takes with Al. Yeah. Uh, my favorite moment of that is when Al's like introducing him to all the different places. He goes, "This is the sheriff's house, Bullock, insane fucking person." Yes. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I did also like that they threw in a bit that I absolutely would do as well, where I'm like, in this house, you know, I don't know who lives there. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I you know, I, I think the tough thing is, though, right, because what I, what I kind of felt was missing from this 
and I, I understand that like in a, in a realistic sense, it wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense to do this, but like if you're having a theater troupe come into town, I feel like the, the first thing you want to do is have them perform. Yeah, sure. Um, because like I, I, I got that they were a theater troupe, but I couldn't really get much past that as far as what they're deal was yep because they're just all kind of hanging around i mean that's what you do when you come into town you just kind of hang around for a while you probably get to set up shop and find a theater or something yeah, I'm they're, assuming, they're looking for a, a place yeah i'm yeah, assuming yeah. the shay shay is going to be the theater yeah um <clears throat> but i don't know like like uh in another kind of tombstone analog when the when the actors show up in tombstone it's like that night there's a play you know what i mean yes yep. um <clears throat> and so i i think that stuff can get obfuscated a little bit um but I think this episode had some really great stuff in it. I think this was this might have been my favorite Hearst episode. It's a great Hearst so far. episode. Yeah. yeah, because not only do you get the weird kind of oddly infantile relationship he has with his uh, auntie or whatever yeah, he calls aunt, her. Aunt Lou. Um, <clears throat> you get the – you start to see the mask slip with him in – a few different ways and it kind of all uh comes to a head in that um really great daniel plainview speech he has towards the end of it that i thought was he's really, talking, really to Tal- good. talking to Tolliver. yeah yeah um and then on the other side i really did like i really did like seeing uh auntie playing gambling with the chinese guys yeah, and just talking Mahjong. about how much of a, a shit head a Hearst was. <laughs> chomping on a cigar yeah that was great yeah um <clears throat> There was some stuff that was a little hard for me to track. Like I, I didn't totally get what was going on with the the Cornish guys and the uh, the other guys in the jail until Bullock confronted Hurst about it. And like, okay, I get it, I get what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that they laid that out was very kind of. I found it a little hard to follow because they're not giving you any exposition. Really, they're just showing you. Uh, Bullock reacting to stuff that he knows that we don't totally understand. Yeah. Um, but I, I loved this. I thought the scene with Bullock and Hurst was great. I thought the scene with Alma and Hurst was great. Both scenes I thought were great. Um, I really liked Alma's response to Ellsworth when they're walking through the thoroughfare. And uh, and she's just like, yeah, fine, whatever. You're my fucking husband, I guess. But you know, like that that yeah, sort yeah. of... Uh, he I, forbids I like that. it. He forbids it. <clears throat> yeah. Um. Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was pretty good overall. Yeah, I, I think the one thing about the show, though, is like I. Yeah. I think it's. I I, I just I, I don't know how many times we can talk about this, but I think it's a it's a symptom of the way that the show's written. Yeah, that it's starting to feel like. All right, what are we going to do this week? Uh, let's have someone new come to camp. Yeah, and I mean that's the that's kind of the. The thing with the setting, right, is like there's lots of people coming and going, but it's it's hard for me not to kind of feel like it's just a, all right, let's see what happens this week kind yeah. of thing. Yep. Um, and I don't, I'm not, I don't necessarily think that's bad, but it is, it is starting to stand out to me a bit more. Uh, like if Brian Cox just like disappeared in three episodes, it wouldn't really surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> he leaves a note for Al, dear Al. I'm watering these kids' vegetables. We don't do the other anymore. Very good. 
Lovely building. Sturdy. Get away now. Uh, yeah, interestingly, Langrish was Milt wanted to introduce the theater troupe in season one. Interestingly, mm. um, which they don't, and they they leave them till season three. Uh, you know, the I guess to close the Langrish thing, like the the Langrish appearance of this episode to me is really just to it recenters Al a little bit, yeah. and you get a sense of like Al is a real person outside of everything that we've seen in Deadwood. Basically, the idea is that he knows this guy from prior to living in Deadwood, so this guy knows more about Al than anybody else does, and. He leads him around the town and you get this nice little sort of understated thing about like there's an exposition and catching people up to the show and what's going on and how far the town has come from where it's been. Everyone's got a house. And it also is just a it's an understated or even unstated ideal of like this is kind of what everyone is fighting for at this point and that this is what Hearst means to dismantle from them. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that works nicely. I the I'm not. I my problem with the Langrish thing is maybe along the lines of what you're saying in that he it feels very strange his introduction feels strange sort of yeah. in that like he they don't they clearly don't want to waste any time but his introduction feels unlike any other character introduction on the show to this point like he the way he just kind of gets out and starts yelling at Al and it's a very unusual reaction, which I guess is intentional, but it's still, it it ju- it does feel very much like the stagecoach is on like a uh, conveyor belt, and this week this person is going to pop in to, yeah. to the show, well, and, it, and it's there's got, no subtlety it's got a, to it. It's got a little bit of that sitcommy thing where it's like this week Al's friend from college shows yeah, up, yeah, you know, that certainly. kind of thing. Yes, I, I which would I mean. Agree. That's a staple of shows like Miami Vice did that shit all the time, where it's like this week Sonny's former partner shows up, and yep. but he's undercover way too deep, you know, that kind of stuff. The Deadwood set, I mean, the, the idea of Deadwood doesn't hurt that introduction style, right? Like people should sort of be coming to this town right. like this. Yeah. And and, yeah. and it makes sense. It's just a, it feels uh, super, I guess I would say it feels aggressively inserted. He, he just kind of arrives immediately. Yeah. You know, there, there's no real introduction. Everyone else, I feel, you know, when Cy and Walcott came in, they started talking to other characters before they really just like power bombed their way into Al's life in, in that mm-hmm. way. So I don't know. I, I don't know how uh, um, strange it is, but that's always my, my issue with the Langrish introduction is that it seems to come out of nowhere and is very surprising, um, which the show acknowledges by, I think Trixie has a line like, who is this guy talking to you like this? Like there's yeah. the, the characters are aware that it's also kind of strange. Yeah, they do really just jump into it. Like as soon as he gets off the thing, he's like, "Al, fuck you." Yes, you're right. <laughs> he's, I'm off to go. I'm off to go find. I'm off to go find a house. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I. Um. And we'll get more into it as like season three approaches. But I, I, and we had um one of our listeners uh, on the Discord as well as Poindexter G who's watching the show along with us and he had some um, comments about Deadwood so far in the recent one. I haven't responded yet just because we were in the middle of recording everything. But um, I, I think that Poindexter maybe doesn't enjoy the show as much as I do, which is fine and fair. And I think that his comment just kind of uh, reminded me of something that like th- there's this thing in the... Uh, 
the Deadwood Bible that I can read that kind of sums it up. It says, Editor and screenwriter Stephen Santos, who co-produced and edited the video Appreciation I Agreed Upon David Milch's Deadwood, agreed with Cox. Oh, there's uh, agreed with Cox about something. He liked the third season best because, quote, it drove home that Deadwood was meant to be a hangout show, as if the Gem Saloon was a 19th century cheers with Al Swearingen presiding over the cast of mm-hmm. characters who stepped through the doors. Deadwood was always about community, even more so in the final season when the town comes together to take its stand for independence against Hearst, the embodiment of America's capitalist impulses. As someone who pines for films and shows which value the micro and macro view of the world equally, such as in the tapestries of Altman's films, I live for the interactions on the margins. Al and Jewel shit-talking each other about the proper way to clean the floor. E.B. Farnham plotting his latest scheme destined to backfire. And yes, even Jack Langreish reciting Shakespeare. Season three is when Deadwood lets you admire each of the brushstrokes that makes for the bigger picture. Um, yeah. I think this is undeniably important that this show be viewed this way, I guess. like, well, yes. not, that, not that it has to be, but like, I think to really under, or understand why people love the show so much, it is this chaos thing that's happening and I think that we'll get into the third season and talk about it but Amy in this rewatch has been like I don't think the third season is strong uh, plot wise as the prior two and I would agree with that but I still love the third season because I think the third season has some of the best just these small little weird scenes that happen between people um and, I, and that kind of that's my counter to what Poindexter was talking about on the discord is that like it's less about plot in a lot of ways mm. like Deadwood is not really a plot show it is as this guy was saying it's kind of this hangout show where you're just tuning in to sort of hope that your favorite characters have a scene together for some right. reason yeah. and occasionally they do and they're really good there is a plot going on in the background and I think that the show covers things like like Hearst I think is a fantastic threat throughout the third season but there are other things that I think feel more disjointed in the third season uh, did you have any any thoughts about that I guess that whole thing I went on Candidly, Richardson, as I imagine you foraging for berries and grubs and flicking at insects with your sticky tongue, I feel a certain dismay. What are you talking about? You're to be discharged, fool. As I suspect, in a wink of time, once some stage from a different direction arrives with my replacement, am I? What did we do wrong? Your error, surprisingly enough, is not to be a grotesque of inconceivable stupidity but that you are white and male and not repulsively obese. As for my own, I wonder if it lies in an excessive courtesy, an eagerness to please. Yeah, I think that kind of describes what we had talked about previously in that, you know, we were kind of discussing whether or not this show would work today for a lot of people and we were both kind of like no we didn't think it would yeah and i and i think the the one of the reasons is because it is a hangout show which is not something i had thought about before but as soon as you said that, I was like yeah absolutely it's a hangout show because as we we're as i was saying previously where it's like i think a lot of people would watch this show now and think it had a lot of filler in it because they're looking for the plot versus just sort of hanging out with the characters right and and just like absorbing the the atmosphere and and the interactions of the town um and if you're not ready for that i think it can be off-putting i was uh i recently watched rio bravo for the first time the john wayne movie rio bravo mainly because uh i had never seen a howard hawks western 
And John Carpenter loves Howard. A lot of those guys love Howard Hawks. John Carpenter, huge Howard Hawks fan. And uh, I'd always heard, oh, Assault on, Precinct, Assault on Precinct 13 is like a remake of Rio Bravo. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, a bunch of guys inside a building trying to defend the building, et cetera. I'll check that out. And so I'm watching Rio Bravo. And Quentin Tarantino loves Rio, Rio Bravo. I'm like, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'm watching Rio Bravo, and I'm like bored out of my fucking mind because it's like John Wayne hanging around town, Dean Martin hanging around town, Ricky Nelson hanging around town, and then like they start singing. <laughs> Dean Martin and Ricky Ricky Nelson start singing with each other, yeah. and and it's I'm like, what is going on? And then there's like a short gunfight at the end, and that's just the end of the movie. Yeah, and I'm like this. Why do people love this? And then I I, I listened to a, a a clip of Tarantino talking about it. And he's like, "Rio Bravo is one of the all time great hangout movies." I'm like, "Oh, yeah. okay. very, very I Tarantino, was, uh, yeah, hangout and talk about something type thing." Yeah, I was expecting like a a, a John Carpenter movie, like a, a more tense. Right, uh, a siege thing or something, right. which is kind of an element of the movie, but not really the point. Um, and so, going into it with that expectation, I found myself just going like, "What the fuck are these guys doing? Right? Why right. this is? I I don't get it." But uh, n- having that understanding, I'm like, "Okay, all right, I can see. Yes, I can understand the attraction. Uh, what's interesting about it." Um, and so I think I think knowing that is a big w- will greatly affect the way that you view the show. Yeah. And if it's if that's something that you like, that's great. But if it's something you don't like, well, then you're probably not going to enjoy it. Yeah, you're going to bounce off uh, off the show. I think because I I just um you know I, I've said it before again and again, but I find some of the scenes uh, within the episodes of Deadwood I just think are like. Perfect. Like between um, between the characters, the actors, and the writing, it's almost irrelevant what else is going on in the town, or like whether or not the yeah. machinations of the plot make sense. You know, the is is there an housing type thing. The mm-hmm. the show is at its worst when it tries to do plot too much because probably because of the way that it was produced, which is that they're they're doing things so off the cuff that long term plotting is not something that's really possible. Um, yeah, yeah, but the show is at its best when it's just this idea of like being made this way. It's David Milch getting there at seven o'clock in the morning, saying, "Who is here today?" And then yeah. they <laughs> and then they write a scene based on who's there. Like, like the cast are just dock workers. Yeah, just like you know, he's pulling he's he's pulling up to the Home Depot, and some guys are getting into the back of the truck as they go off to fix his uh, his yeah. mansion or something. Yeah, I you know I think the Isringhausen thing is a great thing to to uh, examine as far as this idea of, of the show goes, because I think it's an, a great example of of when the show does and doesn't work, because the Isrenhausen thing doesn't work because it is too plotty, and the reason that it becomes too plotty, I think anyway, is because the characters involved in that uh, little side story... Yep aren't interesting and they don't do anything interesting like i'm not clamoring for another scene between miss isrenhausen and and uh yeah. bosh you know the, the stakes are invisible in a lot of ways and yeah, yeah but even so like if it was if that scene was isrenhausen and like farnham or something right. i would be a lot more interested in what was going on yeah. or if she was because I, I didn't find her interesting at all like right. as a character 
you know, Sarah Paulson's a great actress, but I don't think that character was she was doing her any favors. And so every time they cut back to her, I'm like, okay, oh, she's working for who? Okay, great. Let's let's move on to people who are more fun to watch. And so I think that's the thing is that it that style of hangout show works when you've got characters who can carry that sort of scene. Yeah, and I mean. Deadwood is like ninety five percent characters who can carry those types of scenes. Yeah. So like it, it's I I think maybe it stands out that much more when it doesn't work because everybody else in the show is just you know sinking threes for the whole episode. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the things I do like about the Deadwood Bible is that it um it's not exactly just a kind of circle jerk for Milch or whatever in the way that maybe I would, but they have Dayton Cowley follows up that quote from the uh, Santos guy he says. Uh, Dayton Kelly thought that the, uh, that Milch was just wasting paint, which is a reference to the brush strokes making for a bigger picture. He said, quote, people keep talking to me about what a genius David Milch was. David is a smart <laughs> man, no question, and a writer can look at some, and a writer who can look at somebody and write them a perfect fucking character suited to their gifts is very fucking rare. But if you go into a season of a show not knowing what the story is and you got to rewrite and reshoot things all the time to make it work and you make people stand around waiting for your fucking inspiration and a lot of the shit you don't do even make doesn't even make it into the show, well how fucking brilliant are you? A brilliant person wouldn't have to shoot a lot of that shit in the first place. So that's the, I think that's the, I think the counter to it i think dayton Kelly is uh uh really poking holes in the mystique of david milch because he j- clearly just talks like a guy from deadwood <laughs> <laughs> and has a name like a guy from deadwood he does yeah he's he's not far off from charlie utter i don't think but but yeah i mean i think he's got a point you know yep. it, it, it is it really that brilliant if you're just standing around all day waiting for uh, yeah I, I think it's I think it's a it's a uh, people can go either way on the production and on the show itself. Yeah, in that in that respect. The other Cali thing I'll read before um, we go into something else because it ties up our Langriche thing. Cali saw in the Langriche Sloaringen scenes another example of David Milch losing the plot. Quote. People didn't like George Hurst coming in with all these fucking great scenes and shit, and a lot of the original characters got pushed aside. Yeah, it's a typical fucking actor reaction. Who the fuck is this, and why has he got all the fucking good scenes? It upset a lot of people. Anybody who tells you different is a fucking liar. When David got tired <laughs> of writing for the regulars, he would move on and bring in new characters. David would have made a great novelist. He writes really good scenes that don't belong in a television show. Mm, interesting. Um and that's what I love about the show, actually. And the, yeah. the I think Dane Kelly is more of a television actor than that. But I think that some of the scenes are fantastic. And in this one, uh, it's the George Hurst show. And Hurst is one of my favorite characters and definitely one of my favorite antagonists in this entire uh, medium of television that we've ever had. Sounds like Milch would have been a great wrestling promoter, too, because I feel like that's how wrestling promoters work. Just just come up with great uh, great beats to, to move yeah, your, your story you know, along. You got your, you got your core guys who are who are your standbys and your your uh the, the guys you can always count on but then you're bringing in guys from the outside and then the guys your core guys start getting pushed down the car oh, sure. so yep. so hulk hogan can come in and start <laughs> pushing everybody around that's the that's the big criticism of tony khan the guy who runs aew yeah is they started with such a uh core of you know, uh, journeyman type indie guys who never really quite broke out. And as soon as they got the money, as soon as, as soon as they kind of like got the ratings and got the backing, Tony Khan started bringing in 
bigger names from like WWE and who had who had whose contracts were up and stuff who were all great additions, but a lot of the people who had been there from the beginning started to feel a little put out because they were getting kind of pushed down and pushed down the card in favor of the the new shiny the new shiny yeah. character coming through the door. Yeah. yeah. Well, they uh, and now they then the the new shiny characters just have names like Bob Johnson and Tucker Tucker Timbaloo. <laughs> <laughs> All these wrestlers who look exactly the same to me uh, have no have nothing else going on. Um, Hearst, I suppose. So you said you'll like this one as a Hearst episode. Do you want to uh, yeah. get into why I think or why um, you think that? I I had been critical of the way they were d- doing Hearst the first couple episodes. They kind of felt like he was treading water a little bit, um, and I think this broke out of that a bit because he instead of just giving the same usual kind of like I'm all about the color whatever speech you actually see how he reacts to people standing in his way like actively trying to block him yep and it's not pretty yeah He's and up. it's uh it, it's I thought it was really I, like there's a few things because there's even before it starts getting intense I think one of the best lines of dialogue I think that in the whole show, it's a really benign thing that Hearst says, but I thought it was, it's just such a great summation of his character is when uh, Alma comes in and he apologizes for the mess and he says, uh, I give higher priority to making more space for myself than I do adorning the space I already made. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that's, that's the whole thing right there, right? Yeah. I hope you'll forgive the disarray. I seem to feel a greater priority about making space for myself than adorning the space I've made. Refreshments? No. I must say I feel less the grown man just now than a boy from Missouri. My aunt Lou Marchbanks has come to camp. Is your aunt's visit a surprise? No. Heavens, no, no. I, expecting my stay to be brief, I left her at other diggings. Your Aunt Lou prospects, too. My aunt's my nigger cook. I see. Wonderful, wonderful cook. And a tyrant, of course, as the best ones always are. I quite quake before her. Do you? About our conversation, too. Wanting so awfully much, we come to an agreement. Don't disappoint him, being as he's 12 with his aunt in camp. I've learned that we shared time in the Comstock. Mr. Ellsworth, I'm sorry we didn't meet. Whatever stored what he wants. Not a flying fuck if it's true or how fucking soaked in blood. That talk serves no purpose. What talk to a murderer does? I'd not be insulted in my own rooms, Mr. Ellsworth. Where shall we go for me to do it? Will you be in this afternoon, Mr. Hurst? Bodies in here. I certainly can be. The walls are down to make room for him. I see every fucking one great line yeah he's um they do the i don't know if you remember earlier on in the season or when hearst was introduced last season i had mentioned that i thought the show does a good job of tricking you into what hearst actually is as a person um where he comes off his initial appearances have you sort of questioning whether or not he's as big and bad as the show is sort of presenting him as before he gets there and he has a few scenes where there's a 
the confusion about the way he's handling things that are standing in his way kind of comes across as if he has a moral compass within him that he's being guided mm-hmm. and that he wants to handle the Walcott thing and do make things right by that. The way that he handles his other business makes you think that he's actually being driven by some sort of like um, kindness or consideration. And this episode does the same thing by introducing Aunt Lou to foil him a little bit. And Hearst, when Lou is introduced, becomes this sort of very pleasant, overly complimentary, sort of boyish thing. Ellsworth even calls him out that he's acting like a 12-year-old boy whose aunt has showed up. Yes, yes. And he he has this, it seems like you are, the show is setting up that this Aunt Lou character is going to be someone who can kind of put Hearst in his place and it's someone that he looks up to as kind of like a mother figure for him mm-hmm. and that he wants to please her and he he can't be all that bad because he's so complimentary of her and she's an African-American woman or she's black uh, in, in Deadwood at this time. And she's so like, oh, this is interesting. Like, what a strange character. What a, what a man of complications Hearst must be. But obviously, as they go through things and you start to understand and the performance from the Aunt Lou actress is fantastic. And yeah, she's really good. When yeah. she's talking to him and there's this little bit of she's not exactly sure what she should say <laughs> in that moment when her says something to her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's great. But then it ends with this kind of acknowledgement in the Tolliver scene that Hurst is basically one of these Hearst is kind of, in my opinion, he's taking on this air of, he's sort of like this bourgeois progressive, right? Which is that he's he's kind of overly complimentary in a way that is bigoted in and of itself. It's like, it's recognizing a difference through the way that he treats her by treating her, trying to elevate her in a way that only implies that he thinks that she's lower than him, right? Mm-hmm. And he says it at the end. He has his fantastic final line is that whole, um, what the hell is it? The, uh, uh, whatever, whatever, whenever temporary comfort relieving my disple- displeasure brings me, my long-term interests suffer. My proper traffic is with the earth. In my dealing with people, I ought solely to have to do with niggers and the whites who obey me like dogs. And it all just flips at that moment. Like, not even at that moment. Like, Hearst has been leaning that way. But Hearst is so... Hearst has no humanity at all in a way that you're kind of tricked into thinking that he does. And the only reason he acts this way and the only reason he's happy around Aunt Lou is that he believes her to know her place in a way that none of the others do in the town. Um, And that makes him happy although he'd rather be alone by himself or with someone like Tolliver who's willing to sort of be the dog uh, for him. But I think that Hearst is just, um, I think the performance is great. I think the way that he sort of slips into, he's not that different from Walcott. He just controls it and recognizes his long-term interests more. I like the metaphor that they bring back sexual violence is such a a focus of the series. And what Hearst does is he considers himself basically raping Mother Earth when he digs for gold. He has that conversation with Lou about that where he only wants to listen to be told where to dig into her. Um, I just think he's... I, I think Hearst is this like beautiful little abstraction of like some very dark things in humanity, and I think that the performance and the writing... like It, it just makes him such an antagonist that I'm like fascinated to watch, and I think that he just he carries every scene that he's in with everybody. With such disagreement among the statements, Mr. Bullock... 
On what basis could an inquiry justifiably go forward? I put you on notice, Mr. Hurst. I identify a pattern in these events. Unless some law is broken, Mr. Bullock, whose sanctions you have power to apply, why in fuck should I care what pattern you identify or don't? There is a sanction against murder. The man lost his legs in a shaft. It happens quite often. I now learn that your worker who died in the gym last week was killed by two of your guards. I defy you to prove that event about which the two of us have spoken was murder. Whereas in the same saloon nine days ago, two guards of mine giving no provocation had their throats cut with two others of my guards as witness. Certainly the guards who survive are capable of naming the killers. Shall I have them make complaint? Yeah, I also, <laughs> I really liked in that scene with, with uh, I think it was Tolliver. I think it was Tolliver, where he's like, I wanted to kill Bullock and I almost raped Alma, oh, and okay. like they cut over to Tolliver, and the look in his face is like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, like he definitely, like his his Surprised tough guy him. facade breaks yeah. for a second, where he's like, "Oh boy, this guy is something else." Well, that's the other thing. The other thing I like about Hearst, and I can throw it to you, is that um, Gerald McRaney in one of the Deadwood books I had, Milch had each of the actors write a little paragraph about what they thought about the character, and I thought that McRaney had this really great point about what he thought about Hearst was that Hearst has Hearst has a more narrow vision than a lot of the characters on the show, but he sees things within his vision more clearly than a lot of the other characters do. So he is, Hearst, for, like my favorite is the first scene with Tolliver, which is that Hearst is not confused for a minute that Tolliver's Bible thumping is all bullshit. You know, he, right, like, he, right. he sees con otters for what they are and he sees things and he sees people's weaknesses in a way that a lot of the other people and the other characters have trouble getting to or like determining. And Alma's the example in this. She Alma cannot see what Hearst is, but Hearst knows exactly what Alma is and what he needs to do to to get things from her. And I think it just makes him for a very powerful antagonist. He similarly does the same with um when Bullock tries to go in and like read him the riot act, and he's like, Well, how about I just asked the guys who there with who witnessed Al Swearingen kill my guys, and I go ask yeah. them to press charges. Mr. Bullock, what would you think about that? So, seeing you on your balcony the other night, Mr. Tolliver, taking in the life, of the camp, I thought maybe it's time we had a talk. I regret we have to meet in this environment, sir. Not at all. No, no. changes that have gone on here is not the place I'd be seen in by you. I'm sure whatever changes you allude to, Mr. Tolliver, will come clear from your behavior. Fresh start. How many men would be grateful for that opportunity? Do you have more you wish to do with that, or shall I state my business? Please, state your business. Your letter from Mr. Walcott naming me as having knowledge of his misdeeds. A letter I mentioned to you, yes, and a conversation I regret. Five percent of my holdings I recall as your demand, or you would circulate the letter's contents. Exactly what I regret and now find reprehensible, and why I thank God that you take a new look at me. To this point, Mr. Tolliver, you make no materially different impression. Still lying, still bullshitting. I hope I'm not, sir, but I, I can certainly understand why that would be your material second impression. Shall I show you the letter from Mr. Walcott that I have in my possession? That's not necessary from my point of view. Uh, you tell me you've got it. I believe you. Here it is. Will you compare it to your letter? Verify its authenticity. It's not necessary. Shall I read to you certain 
pertinent sections on Walcott's assay of your nature and likely behavior after his death, his detailing your complicitous participation in the aftermath of his crimes, disposing of the bodies and so forth. You have no letter from Walcott, Mr. Tolliver. Let's say that's the case. I just did. Let's hear you say it. I have no letter from Mr. Walcott. Never did. I never did have one. You're a lying, blackmailing sack of shit. What do you want? I want you to go to work for me. But, yeah, any, uh, any other thoughts about Mr. Mr. Hurst in here, her favorite sequences? Yeah, I think, it's, I think he's very fascinating because he definitely, he, is, he puts on airs in both directions, right? Like, he's the way he talks to Lou, but also the fact that he's, he's basically like a Duck Dynasty cast member mm-hmm. where he's like, yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just like you guys. I'm a, I'm a man of the land. But then he's like, but he's also, he's a super rich guy who... Yep. You know, is is definitely. I does. She, I think she does. She call him on that. Does Lou call him on that in some sense, or somebody call him on that in this episode? Uh, well, she but talks about maybe it's maybe it's Alma. I can't remember. Somebody somebody mentions him sort of his uh, uh, shit kicker attitude being kind of an act or something. I think. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. I can't remember. Maybe I was just thinking that. She brings up the, I mean, because Lou brings up the fact when she wants to clean his boots that he doesn't have another pair. Because I think that, you know, I mentioned it before, but Hearst is interesting because Hearst is not interested in what the wealth brings him besides right. getting the gold. And I, I like, right. I, I think that's a really fascinating character description for someone that he is this, he is this abstraction of an idea about capitalism. And what I think he's, he does a good job because I, I always run into this issue with those like you have this sort of like anti-capitalist type thing and obviously capitalism has problems. But I think sometimes people throw out the baby with the bathwater, which is to say that like capitalism can only become Hearst, which I, th- I don't think is correct, really. Mm-hmm. Like there's a the capitalism is just the engine that pre- creates the wealth. But the problem with the engine is that the driver there could potentially be someone like Hearst who has this soul narrow myopic vision of he just wants more and he wants everything else and like he ceases to see boundaries he knocks down the wall of the hotel he he's potentially going to violate women and things like that he Mm -hmm. does not respect difference or distance between things because he thinks that the world is his and i I think that they do a good job of just making hearst that that thing which is that he's not even interested in the, the greed or the ostentatiousness of it he's interested in the the power dynamic that comes from it and that's the most dangerous thing with it as opposed to his you know because you could praise Hearst for being so driven that he's so successful because he's clearly driven right. in what he wants yeah. to do it's it's just that his focus is wrong and he's willing to do harm in the direction of his focus which could you know otherwise be harnessed for good things yeah, you should get a a giant um a t sh- a full t shirt print of his face, like one of those Scarface t shirts. Yep. Because I mean, that's the same kind of thing, right? It's uh, instead, of, instead of like a, a Che t shirt or something. Yeah. Is that the reference? No, it like the 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 Tony Montana Scarface t shirts with the whole culture oh, I built around him as being gotcha. this uh uh the person who who played the system and and one capitalism oh, or gotcha, however, gotcha, yeah. whatever yeah. the whatever the uh, interpretation of that movie is other than 
<laughs> drug drug dealer goes down hard, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. If he's if he's the end stage of capitalism or something like that, uh, yeah, subreddit. Yeah, no, Hearst is just. Uh, but I think that's what makes him. You know, it's what we talked about before. It's what makes Hearst somewhat unrealistic too, because he's sure. he's more powerful than you would think he could be. But he is just a man in this show at the same time, so it it, it does take a little bit of a like a theatery uh, symbolism to sort of uh, yeah. understand him, I guess. I I still I'd be really I'm still dying to know if there's any uh, inspiration drawn from this from Hearst for Daniel Plainview because I feel like they're very similar characters. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, they will be blood was the movie was after this though right it must have been yes yeah yeah, yeah. um because they they both are they both have that same drive single-minded drive which i think very smartly in both cases uh doesn't where that could in the hands of lesser writers result in a single uh, a one-dimensional character they realize that the thing that gives him dimensions isn't the single-mindedness. It's how he reacts to everyone else around him in service of the single-mindedness. Right. Yeah. And so that's what you're starting to see here with Hearst is you're seeing how the different groups of people that he's rea- he's interacting with and how he reacts to them and how he sometimes feels the need to placate them um, and put a big smile on and then what happens when they deviate from what he wants yeah yeah exactly yeah Yeah, it's it's very interesting yeah he's um he's a good performance it's just a from one of the reviews i thought this was a good line about him it's quote hearst's inhumanity has a clarifying effect on the series which is so charming even at its nastiest that it was always at the risk of letting us get too comfortable with the characters a monologue in the meeting between Hearst and Sai hangs a frame around Deadwood's portrait of class, gender, national, and racial hierarchies. Hearst is not ashamed exactly that he wants to own the world and everyone in it, but he does know that others expect him to be ashamed, and he recognizes that his impulse to rape communities and institutions, and perhaps on occasion women, impedes his ability to do what he loves the most, which is to rape the planet. Um, which is his difference from Walcott, right? Like people say that they're kind of... They are similar in some sense, but Walcott is kind of a proto-Hurst, which is that he hasn't developed this idea that he needs to delay his urges. You know, he can't... Mm -hmm. Hurst has the quote in this line, like they were saying in that review, is that he... The things that he wants to do, he he recognizes because of experiences in his past harm his long-term interests and what he actually wants to accomplish. And Walcott didn't have that realization, mostly because I don't think that Walcott had any long-term goals or drives in the way that Hearst does. Like, Walcott was driven by his insecurities and his sort of, like, fucked-up nature in a way that Hearst is able to suppress it in some way because he has a bigger bigger goal in mind at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. Walcott definitely didn't have anything that he was driving towards. No, which ultimately makes his suicide make sense, right? There's just, once it's gone, he's, he's gone as well. Um, Poindexter also mentioned uh, the not recognizing that the Walcott committed suicide, and I was like, "Oh yeah, he doesn't." Mm. But I went back and I rewatched it. It's not exactly clear that he's killed no. himself. No, I, I when I watched it, I I remember when we recorded, you mentioned that, and I was like, "Oh, I didn't even realize that was Walcott." Yeah, yeah. So it's it's, it's definitely not clear. Although it's very fast, this episode clarifies something I had asked at the time in the ep- in that episode, which is the finale of season two. 
I said, who is Walcott writing that letter to? Because there's a scene where he's just writing and they don't oh, say right, anything. Yeah. He's writing yeah. it to Hearst, which is what Hearst right. brings up with Tolliver in this one because uh, Walcott's suicide letter described what Hearst was or what Tolliver was going to do after the fact and that he hadn't given him a letter, which Hearst uses against Sai in this one. What do you... Uh, you didn't have no fucking letter from Walcott. <laughs> what do you think? What do you think of Cy Tolliver uh, as he as he exists at this point in the series? Cy to I think Cy has taken such an interesting turn because every scene with him still has that Powers Booth stank on it, but he's just such a bitch now. Yeah, and like it's uh, you know the, he's literally referred to as like a lap dog and he's like yeah baby that's why they gave me a tail that's, so why, I yeah, that's why i gotta give me a tail you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like sai am i am i supposed to take you seriously here like don't you know on on the one hand you've got Joni, who is i mean this is i think this is just natural in how people like this are in real life but yep. you've got Joni, who's cr- like terrified of this guy and who has such an intense stranglehold on her. And then on the other side, he's just, you know, bending over for Hearst. Yeah. And and happy to happy to be his uh his his uh his, his bitch. Yeah. And it's 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 very interesting because I I don't know what he he has never seemed like someone okay, what am I trying to say? Um People who complain about drama, not liking drama and demanding respect and dignity are usually the ones who are constantly surrounded by drama and have little yeah. or no dignity and deserve no respect. Yep. And he's definitely one of those people who has a very high-minded view of himself in a very certain way, which is compensating for the fact that he is a total pushover when someone stronger than him enters the scene. Yeah, he's he's interesting because he is he foils against Hurst like nicely, I think, which yeah. is that Tolliver is surprisingly driven by what other people think and how other people react to him, and Hurst does not think it's relevant at all how people react to him because he's yeah. going to get what he wants. But Sai is so needy in a way that like is 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 very obvious through the two and a half seasons that we've seen of him, and you know, with Joni leaving and them. Uh, getting stabbed and everything like that when he doesn't have a when he doesn't have everyone just in his clutches he's really a very pathetic character who doesn't really have much else going on for himself and is willing to sell himself to Hearst for you know any kind of bit at all because he doesn't think that he has anything else going on um he, he, his cons are not as good anymore he, he's just run out of gas <laughs> really you know it's like That's there's the nothing left of him that's the thing too. I feel like every one of these scenes, even when he's getting steamrolled, the way that Powers Booth plays him is like the the inner monologue of power of of Cy Tolliver is, man, I'm really getting one over on Hearst here. <laughs> I love the first scene between those two, where he's he's trying to do the Bible thing, where he's like he's like the good yeah. Lord, Mister Hearst, has given me guidance. He's like, fuck yourself, Cy Tolliver, you're you're a shitty blackmailing con man. He's like. What do you? I like the turn of he's like. What do you want from me? Like, why did you come here? And yeah, wants him to work for him. Um, yeah, so Sai is uh, continuing down that path of not having anything. I don't like think, he's he's no better than than Farnham at this point. No, he's not. He's just more uh, 
more confident, I guess. Farnham, yeah. Farnham, Farnham recognizes his position, I think, a little bit more than, than Tolliver does. And I, I think they're the same kind of person, though, yes. right? Because yeah. Farnham takes his... The, the power that gets exerted on him causes him to exert power on Richardson. Yeah. The yeah. same way Tolliver exerts power on the women. Yes. To balance out the uh, power that's exerted on him by Hearst and, you yep. know, yeah, they, the power they flows down. Like, like they always, they're the characters who get picked on pick on people who are below them, you know, as a way to to yeah. uh, like stabilize their minds or whatever. It's so strange, isn't it? I mean, that I guess dynamic. it makes sense. Yeah, because I mean, it just exists everywhere. Like I remember uh, when I was when I was little, I spent a lot of time at my cousin's house. Yep. Uh, I I had three older cousins, and the youngest of those cousins would always like tease me relentlessly Mm -hmm. and anytime i would complain about to my mother she'd be like well he's doing that because he has an older brother who does it to him and i was like (laughs) okay i mean in a weird way that makes sense but like why would you do you know i couldn't comprehend what that power dynamic was yeah but it it is it is that's just how the world works you know people get fucked over by someone and they sit on it and stew on it and when they get the chance to fuck someone over who's lower than them they're gonna do it yeah it's the same with um it's the same but less serious but it's the 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 same way that um like sexual abuse would work which is that it's like it it, the the teasing or whatever alters and the sexual abuse like alters your understanding of reality to a point where it's like all you know is that and so passing it on you know has that kind of twisted logic to it which is that like this is the way that this is the way that the world seems to make sense to me at this point unfortunately teasing is just a a lesser variance of that is um and it's all the whole like because with the the little kids that i have it's like the it's just kind of like a uh performative like power play you know it's like they Mm. they try to get on top by um teasing other people which is obnoxious and always needs to be you have to hit them on the snout as Hearst says (laughs) here and you do it with a trained hand you should do a social experiment and t- uh, have your youngest son take boxing lessons. Yeah. But not not the other ones. Yeah. <laughs> <And> so <laughs> I tie them down like veal and they just can't have any see, muscle. Yeah. See how see how the, the power dynamic in the family <laughs> changes once the oldest oldest brother tries to uh, push around the younger one and he gets a hook to the jaw. But the six year old takes um jujitsu now. Oh, and he's been doing it for fun. a couple of years. I was like, this is good. He'll defend himself. But he can now come up behind me and put me in a choke that actually causes me to choke. And I'm like, all right, well, we've trained. <laughs> does we've, he have to, <laughs> does he have to jump like a foot and a half in if, the air? Or if is I'm he sitting, like six feet tall? If I'm like sitting on the couch or something and he like hops oh, yeah. up behind me and yeah. he can he can do enough. That, not that I can't shake him off, but it's enough where I like I definitely lose my breath for half a second until I manage yeah. to pull his arm off. But. Is he a black belt yet? Because I I, uh, I I felt like there there must have been a huge dip in martial arts. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not subscriptions, like, but um, like uh, train, like uh, just d- numbers of people participating in it. Yeah, the, the number of people who are who are taking martial arts lessons. I I feel like there must have been a big dip somewhere when I was in my teens mm-hmm. because I, I I I had younger cousins who started taking karate. Yeah, and when I took karate, it was there was a there was a, a kids belt system and then an adult belt system. Yep, and it was like you know you could uh, the highest you could get as a kid was a red belt, and then you ne- no pretty much nobody got there because by the time you, the 
the length of time it would take to achieve a red belt, you were old enough that you would go into the adult thing, right? Right, sure. So there were yeah. no young black belts or anything. Then my ki- my uh, uh, cousins are taking karate, and like at 12, they're, they're like, oh, yeah, he just got his black belt. Like, what? <laughs> well, the In what? <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, the belt system is a little weird because he, he hasn't gotten, he hasn't belted up. He did judo before that, and the belt system is fairly arbitrary, really, at least at the yeah. place that he was doing and not in a, you know, maybe it starts getting serious once you get to, like, black belts and they start having, like, the tiers of black belts that you have at that point. Maybe that means right, something, yeah. but it, it was yeah. really like this kid showed up to class four weeks in a row he gets a right. he gets a belt at this point that's what i mean yeah i feel like they must have really lowered the uh yeah the, the lowered the bar for entry for for passing so if you're uh, if you're walking if you're walking down the street at night and some guy with a black belt steps in your path you, you have a chance that you you might be able to take him down depending on when I mean, he started training yeah if like a 13 year old <laughs> with a black belt jumps in front of me i think i might be able to you know front kick him through a window or something but yep yeah, yeah. Don't get yeah. We up. had, we had like, uh, like uh, stripes and stuff on the belt. So it was like yeah, a, yeah. every belt had like a multi-tier. Yes, it doesn't go color to color. Into it. And sometimes they split the colors, so you'd be like a purple and yeah. yellow and or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was you had to earn that shit. Yeah, back in my day when I took a, karate when I was eight. <laughs> it's not as. Uh, I think things have. Well, the difference is that when we started, there was no MMA yet. So True. MMA kind of exposed which of the martial arts are ones that people should actually train in, you know, which like, mm-hmm. which what have what real real world applications, I guess. And jujitsu has stayed that way. Have I talked about the rabbit hole I went down uh once where I came across these videos on YouTube of this this guy who was probably I don't know, maybe his mid twenties, maybe late twenties. And he had he was an Aikido master. And sure. He had trained and I he had spent his whole life training training in Aikido. And he had heard people shit talking Aikido, saying it wasn't a practical martial art and it, well, there was no actually like practical application or whatever. And you know, blah, blah. and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to spar with an with a mixed martial arts fighter mm-hmm. and see how my expert level ability at Aikido fares up against an MMA fighter. Yep. And he got wrecked <laughs> to the to the point where. <laughs> After he got wrecked, his follow-up video was him saying that he's decided to stop learning Aikido and that he felt like he wasted his life (laughs) (laughs) and that he was now going to start training in mixed martial arts. And it was a very interesting rabbit hole to go down because the end of that story was him getting divorced from his wife Mm. and then like traveling the world on foot like kang from uh, karate kung fu Fu, and like to the point he had like a special (laughs) suit made for him that was it was he went fucking nuts like it was it was very interesting how getting punched in the nose once by an mma guy shattered his entire view of the world yeah i mean rogan on his podcast kind of always talks about that because some of the martial arts have a very like religiously spiritual outlook to them where yeah you know, it's like the master of the dojo or whatever has these like kids who are just sort of like, it's the same, it's those uh, like those, whatever, the Baptist or whatever kind of churches there where the, the touched, you know, they do the speak in the oh, tongues sure, and sure. stuff. Like yeah. a lot of it just becomes this sort of performative social thing to do. Yeah. And because uh, it was, it might have been the same idea, but there was one of those guys who just like, 
you know, it's a, it's a martial art where like he holds up his fist and people fall down, but he, yes. he went up against yeah. someone who was actually like an MMA fighter and he just like broke his, broke his face in a, a half a second and it's over. I, you know, the, the reason I found this whole thread was because I had, um, I think it started with me looking up a Steven Seagal video and Steven Seagal is notorious for, for doing those kinds of bullshit, uh, uh, exhibitions. And I went from there into, you know, this longer form essay someone had done about how all martial arts are, are, are kind of like more cults than they are anything else. Mm -hmm. And that got into this uh, story about this, um, this mixed martial artist guy from China who uh, basically pushed back against the idea that Kung Fu was this uh, inconquerable fighting style. Yeah, yeah. And Kung Fu is like built into the society of China in a way that it's, that stuff is not here. Yep. And he did an exhibition against a Kung Fu master, kicked the shit out of the guy. Yeah. And basically got thrown in jail as a political prisoner because of it. Yeah, yeah. And it's upsetting. and the, yeah, and and the way he ended up getting out was he had to uh have another match with another kung fu master uh wearing <laughs> clown makeup on his face and basically he had to let the kung fu guy win. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like man uh, very very intense. That's why MMA MMA was basically a science experiment to determine which of the fighting styles are legitimate you know that's really all it was yeah. is that like early mma was like all kinds of like weird fighting styles and just street boxers and like you know early mma was just like giant fat guys <laughs> who were throwing haymakers yeah and, uh, those but, early ones are fun to watch <laughs> but eventually you learn you know they settled on you need to you need to have boxing as a stand-up game and you need to be able to do some kind of jujitsu hold base thing on the ground when all fights yeah. go to the ground and that's that's like the that's the that's the best kind of fighting style that you can have i uh i remember seeing um another video that was speculating that the first ufc was uh heavily skewed to favor it's a family i can't they're, they're, the, they're the most gracies yes who basically are the uh the preeminent jujitsu, pre, preeminent yeah. jujitsu from in like all the all the world, I think. And uh, it was it was kind of, it was like borderline conspiracy theory about how the first UFC specifically ended up putting them in a position to win mm -hmm. based on the people that they ended up fighting in, in at certain sections and stuff. It was interesting. But, yeah, I mean, was, I hadn't seen. It was all just random. They, they used to have you. They used to have like single day one-and-done knockout tournaments in UFC, which is insane that right, you would have yeah. to fight multiple times um, in a day. But, I mean, the Gracies might have just... If, you know, the trained jujitsu guy is going to beat the fat guy who's throwing haymakers, I think. Like, that's just the way it works. So. <laughs> hey, man, all takes one punch. <laughs> it does. You just have to make sure that the punch lands. Um, well, we are at an hour. We'll wrap this up with... Uh, Sorry, I didn't mean to take up all that time talking about... No, that's about fine. Any karate videos any random thoughts i just i'm looking at my screen now and just one of the quotes i had was the the ellsworth alma and hearst scene um ellsworth says what talk to a murder uh, alma says what that talk serves no purpose ellsworth says what talk to a murderer does Hearst says i'd not be insulted in my own rooms mr ellsworth and ellsworth says where shall we go for me to do it yes. <laughs> yeah that was really good <laughs> you know i i thought i thought the scene where uh after 
<clears throat> Alma goes back and she ends up talking to Ellsworth. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, talking to Ellsworth, it was, not to Hearst. When yeah, they, when, yeah which sorry. Is, yeah. yeah, after she has gone to talk to Hearst and she goes yep, back and right. she's talking to El- Ellsworth the way that she kind of breaks down a little bit and I, uh, he says she would have deserved it, which is you don't. That, a yeah. marriage is tough recovering from from that. I think. Yeah. yeah. The thought I'd put into it, all the time I took to write it out and put it by and look again. I began to read to him my proposal, but I, I was more and more afraid. I was only chanting sounds. Finally, I made myself look to him to confirm that I was speaking intelligently and being understood. Now you know. He grinned at me like a jackal. This is what I would have spared you. He scorned my offer. He said I mistook his nature absolutely. You did? Yes. And was there more? After the jackal smile? It seemed very possible that there could be, but finally he let me go. He had restrained you? I was very afraid. I can't say with any certainty exactly what was happening. What the hell do you mean? Did he try to leave? And did he prevent you? Don't use that tone of voice with me. I know what that means. Oh, do you, Mr. Ellsworth? That you're a goddamn fool almost got what she deserved. And what would that have been? And why would I have deserved it? I only wanted to protect you. You can't. That's that's uh, that's a rough rough way to respond to your wife. Uh, almost possibly getting raped by a person you know is a is a murderer. Although I think they, I think the show, I think the show sets up that conflict almost perfectly because yeah. they're they're both like they're both right. Like Alma was wrong to do what she did, and Ellsworth was trying to, you know, Ellsworth was trying in his sort of like impotent sham marriage kind of way to like have some say in what goes yeah. on and knowing better. And she, she being Alma refused to do that and said that I, I'm in control of the situation. Um, but then he obviously takes a lot of glee in the way that like a lot of uh, real relationship fights go, which is that he just, he chooses the wrong moment to say the wrong thing there at the yeah. very end. And it, it all blows up in his face. But I, I just like how I, I, I like that fight because of how balanced it is. And it's not, it's not, you know they're both wrong and they're both right at the same time, which right, I think is a yeah. good fight. Yeah, because he, I mean, it's clear. <clears throat> I think it's clear that she doesn't really, especially now that the baby's gone, she doesn't really have much respect for Ellsworth. I don't think. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And so the way that she completely disregards everything that he warns her about with Hurst, uh, as him just being, you know, uh, overzealous or whatever, overreacting, uh, only to have, arguably more happen than yeah. maybe he warned her about he thought, it's yeah. yeah it's it's uh it's it's a good a good turn of events i think man i continue to think she's a really good character and because she is she's not a great person no. and she's no. you know i in this case i think they are both right and they are both wrong but it continues that thing where even though she is in this marriage it's clear that she doesn't 
think that he's on her level, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Even even when she's talking to Hearst and she's like, you know, I this is just my first proposal. I don't know what I'm doing <laughs> here. <laughs> I, his, Hearst's responses in that one are fantastic. He has some great lines. He says, I'm afraid I lack the qualities that minority participation requires, which is uh, understatement of the year. Um, <laughs> he has the thing about like it offends, uh, just his like disgust with her proposal about the whole thing. It's, it's a... Uh, it's, uh, I don't know, and I think and I think McRaney, when she's talking, his face, his facial acting is as he's just getting more and more like incredulous that this is what she's come to him with. Um, I think it works out pretty well. Who, what was the? Uh, I had one other. I don't remember what it was actually. Um, oh, uh, Cochran, he's sick. Oh yeah, yeah. That's the that's maybe the only other thing uh, that super happens in this episode. But there, there isn't even much there. It's just that Cochran has come down with <laughs> a cough. I did like that scene though, where where uh, Trixie was like, you know, if you want me to shut to put out the cigarette, you can just ask, and then he just vomits up blood. <laughs> yeah. I'll go, I'll go now. Yeah, so tuberculosis, you would assume, which um, is not good news in 1877 or whenever the stakes no. was. All right, any final thoughts about this one? True Colors. You liked Brian Cox being added yep. to it, but you're interested in seeing more of where that goes. You thought it was a good Hearst episode. Is it the third worst episode? We haven't seen the worst episode yet. We've seen the second worst, according to Vulture, which was Bullock Returns to the Camp in season one. Okay. And True Colors is yeah. next. But yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I like I, I think you said it's it's kind of a fool's errand to try and compare these episodes because it it's you know, I think some of them obviously stand out as great, but I, I don't know. I, I, I have yet to see one where I was like, yeah, I was a stinker. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. It's just the, the little, everything exists in the little moments of the show. And I continue to always enjoy the little moments. Uh, yeah. My final thoughts. I, I like this one. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about Langrish and the theater troupe as they move along. Um, I continue. I just, I, thoroughly enjoy Hearst as an antagonist and I enjoy every scene yeah. that he's in. I think that the show is really doing something interesting with his character. All the scenes tick uh, and move along. I love little random... <laughs> I just love little random bullshitty things that happen like when um, American Blaznoff, he's trying to explain how they can send two messages at the same time by talking yes. in a high voice and a low <laughs> voice. It's just weird. The show just has weird little... They came up with this on a whim and shot a scene about it, you know, and yeah. it made it into the final episode. It's just, it's really charming, um, enjoyable. They, I, I mean, I'm always a sucker for a good wordplay joke. And there's the, I forget who Trixie's talking to, uh, but someone says uh, her temperament is labial or something. Yes, or, yeah, and labile, she responds labile, with, yeah. Labile, yeah. She's like, she was talking through her cunt. <laughs> <laughs> Trixie always, um, Makes weird connection like, because she was the one who got the the Jew harp. It, what's the Jew harping on about? And she's like, "Is that a fucking pun?" Um, yeah. yeah, so Trixie's I, always. I don't know. Jokes. She is. She's nuts, man. I don't know Trixie. what's going on with her. Yeah, yeah. Like every every single scene with her is her storming in and just screaming about something, and whoever's <laughs> there is like, "I don't know what you're talking about." Could could you? Hand me the mail. I didn't remember how much, how many scenes of Saul Star are just him being incredulous to being yelled at by Trixie. He, yes. he really doesn't <laughs> have much else going on but, to be yelled this, at her. This season, especially, I mean, we're only a few in, but definitely a lot of last season is, is mostly him just kind of standing there bewildered and going like, <laughs> all right, 
Okay. <laughs> yeah, she comes in. She comes in hot. Uh, was there a pun? Oh, your pun made me wonder if I had. I can't remember what it was at this point. I thought there was a pun, but maybe there there is not at this point. Um, yeah, the labile. <laughs> she talked through her fucking cunt. Uh, that's it. I it guess. reminded me. It reminded me of a of a of a line from the Miami Vice movie that mm-hmm. I always thought was so stupid, where uh, um, they're telling uh, Crockett and Tubbs this this informant guy or whatever is is talking about the bad guy Jose Yero and he says you don't understand these guys are vertically integrated and then Tubbs just goes you mean they walk around with constant erections? He goes, no, I mean there's something somebody goes I know what it means. It's just such a weird thing to throw in. <laughs> yep, yep. They'll throw these jokes in. They'll throw them out. Uh, I guess that's it. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our coverage of True Colors, the third episode of the third season of Deadwood. Only a couple, more than a couple, a little bit of episodes left. The season is the uh, the final one that we're in of Deadwood. You can support the show at patreon.com slash thepenskyfile. If you're coming to the podcast late and we're already done, you can still go to patreon.com slash thepenskyfile, figure out what we're up to now. Give a couple dollars to support the work that we did in the past. <laughs> Create something of value and then uh, monetize it for later on down the line. And that's it. There's a Discord, all that stuff. You can find all the links down in the podcast description below. We will be back with the next episode, which is called, what the hell is it called? Full Faith and Credit. So, Clay, did you have anything you want to say before we head out of here? Uh, keep checking out Rotten Horror Picture Show. We're doing... Um video nasties this year on patreon we've got uh toby hooper's the fun house coming up for august and i don't know what we're doing after that we've got a few more left there and we've got uh, we just finished season two of batman beyond on Batass. we're going to be taking a bit of a break and then coming back to do uh the movie return of the joker which i'm very excited about and i was saying to sean i i was debating whether we should save return of the joker till we finish the series only because I feel like Return of the Joker is 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 by far the high mark mm-hmm. of Batman Beyond, and if we do that now, we might not be super enthused about coming back to finish out the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're going to do it chronologically, and so that's where Return of the Joker would land is in between seasons two and three. So, uh, also check out the comic book I've got on the stands: Batman White Knight presents Generation Joker. Got two issues left. Uh, issue five comes out in September and features a variant cover drawn by yours truly. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, be much obliged. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the show. This is the Something Pretty Podcast. I'll end it with, I, I think sometimes maybe Jack Langrish's quotes aren't as memorable, but uh, I'll say a couple of them here. He says, always superfluous bloodshed, deeper damage is best. And my favorite Jack Langrish quote is, it's the learning fucking nothing owl that keeps me young which I think is a very good little quote. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. This is Something Pretty. We'll be back next week with full faith and credit. See you then. I hope you'll take it as a measure of my keenness, sir, and curiosity. (laughs) Yes, 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 Mr. Tolliver. You wish to know your duties in my service. I'll make my way through the muck to learn the details. Your duties will be to answer like a dog when I call. Like a dog? Complications of intention on your part in dealings with me, or duplicity, or indirection, behavior in short which displeases me, will bring you a smack on the snout. Ouch.
When administered by a practiced hand, such a blow can be more painful and grievous even than your recent sufferings. I don't doubt the hand would be practiced. Mr. Swearingen recently discovered as much. I gather it cost him a finger. But I should say, too, that in these rooms just this afternoon, such displeasure brought me near to murdering the sheriff and raping Mrs. Ellsworth. I have learned through time, Mr. Tolliver, and has repeatedly seemed to forget that whatever temporary comfort relieving my displeasure brings me, my long-term interests suffer. My proper traffic is with the earth. In my dealings with people, I ought solely have to do with niggers and whites who obey me like dogs. <laughs>